you have your Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. The book of Galatians can be found in your New Testament, and also if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you want to use that, it's page 972 in the pew Bible. I mentioned we're starting our series through the Paul's letter to the Galatians, and the series title is The Gospel Changes Everything. And that title seems appropriate because there's really one purpose to Paul's letter, and that is to clarify the gospel. For six uh, chapters, Paul explains to us what the gospel is, he explains how the gospel changes us, and how it works itself out uh, into our lives, and how it really applies to every, every single area of our lives. And so when you hear that, maybe this morning you're already thinking, I can kick back for the next three months, uh, clarify the gospel. I mean, I can come in and check out on Sunday morning because been there, done that. I know the gospel, maybe you're thinking. I, I've been a Christian all my life, and so, you know, I don't know a lot of advanced things, but I definitely am clear on the gospel, and so I'm good. Well, before you go there this morning, I want you to listen very, very carefully And you cannot miss this, because it's one of the most obvious things about the letter, but it's also one of the things that a lot of people tend to overlook when they study the book of Galatians, and it's this. The book of Galatians is written to Christians. It's written to us, to our church this morning. This is not a letter written to skeptics and uh, non-believers and cynics, but it's written to Christians to those who believe in Jesus. And so we learn something very quickly about the gospel. And it's this, the gospel is not simply for non-Christians, it definitely is, but it is also for believers to continually learn and to work deep into their bones and into their soul, to work the gospel in and apply it to every area of their life. You know, we often assume that the gospel, and Keller has uh, coined this phrase, we often assume that the gospel is the ABCs uh, of the Christian life, or it's the ABCs, kind of the elementary stuff for non-Christians, or for new Christians at least. And we presume that the gospel is something that we just hear once, and study once, and then once we become a Christian, we move on to the advanced stuff, the more complicated doctrine. There is no advanced stuff. This is... The gospel, that is the advanced stuff. See, we never, as a Christian, you never outgrow the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z in the Christian life. It's not just the entryway in, you get your fire insurance, you know you're not going to hell, you're good. Now move on with your life. No, 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 no. The gospel is the path that you are to walk every single day of your life. Because it's the gospel, and we're going to see this all um, the next several months. The gospel is what changes people. It's what changes churches and what changes communities. And as we're going to see here, Paul is not going to tell the Galatians that their problems will be solved by getting better and trying harder. He's going to tell them they are transformed by taking the gospel deeper and working out its implications in their lives. I think you'll see what I mean as we begin this letter uh, to the Galatians. 
This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. Follow along with me as I read. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we... Paul's talking about himself and the other apostles. Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. Pretty strong. Listen again in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to come through his spirit and to help us this morning with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we are so helpless that we can't even really understand your word unless your spirit shows up and helps us. And so we desperately need your spirit this morning to take this passage and to apply it to our hearts. Lord, convince us this morning that we're worse than we think we are, but that the gospel is better than we think it is. That your love for us uh, is better than we could possibly imagine. Lord, show us the goodness And the grace of Jesus and how good the news really is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul wrote, uh, many uh, scholars, it's a lot of consensus on the book of Galatians being written around 50 AD. Which is less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is an apostle, we learned as we were reading the text, and he was also a missionary, and he went around and he told people about Jesus. Uh, That's what he did, and he goes to this area called Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey, and Paul's strategy was to tell people about Jesus, to gather people together and plant a church, and then once the church got up and running... Uh, Paul would then go to another area and do the same thing, and then he would move on and, and on. That was his missionary strategy for reaching people. He does that with Galatia, and so he moves on from Galatia, and soon after he leaves, there were these Christian missionaries who were ethnically Jewish that came into Galatia, and they were visiting these churches that Paul had planted, and they basically were like, yeah, Paul, uh, we love Paul. Paul's a good guy. And what he's telling you is mostly true. It's mostly true. Yes, you definitely need Jesus. But Paul also left a few things out that we need to tell you about. If you really want to be accepted by God, then you've got to do what the children of Abraham have always done. 
And you got to get circumcised. And not only do you have to get circumcised, you need to follow also the laws of Moses. In other words, they were coming to the Galatian church and they were saying to be fully accepted by God, you need Jesus plus something. You need Jesus plus circumcision and obedience, which is contrary to Paul's gospel of Jesus plus nothing. And so that's why Paul is writing. Paul is writing this book in response to these Jewish Christian missionaries and to what they were teaching these young Christians. You've ever heard the phrase, those are fighting words? These are fighting words for the Apostle Paul this morning. Look at verses 8 through 9. I mentioned the strong language. But Paul essentially, in the book of Galatians, he locks the gate and picks a fight. That's what he does. Notice here, this does not begin like all, all the rest of Paul's letters. Notice something's missing in these early words from the Apostle Paul. What is it? Thanksgiving. You know, most of his letters, he says something like, I thank my God every time I remember you. He even gives thanksgiving to Corinth. <laughs> and they were a train wreck, not here. No words of thanksgiving, but instead... Of thanksgiving, Paul threatens a curse because Paul is ready for a fight. You hear this and maybe you're thinking, well, Paul's just being insecure that somebody's coming on his turf. Or, you know, this sounds a lot like Paul got up on the wrong side of the bed or is just having a, a bad day. No, 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 that's not it. Paul is a concerned parent who sees his children walking away from the gospel and from life. And so why would he call curses down on these folks who are preaching a different gospel? Because this was serious. Because in Paul's mind, to preach another gospel was spreading death. It was killing people. And Paul is saying here, remember, let them be accursed. He is saying it would be better for them to be dead. Think about this. It would be better for them to be dead than to preach a false gospel. That's what's being communicated here because Paul says the only way to have true life and to have freedom is Jesus plus nothing, the gospel. And so two things this morning. We're going to look first at what the gospel is, and the second question we're going to answer is how do we distort the gospel? What does it look like? For us to distort the gospel. So those two things. Let's look at number one. What the gospel is. Well look at verse one. Paul starts laying out his credentials. And he does it really all through chapter one. Uh, but he starts off saying I'm an apostle. And here's what Paul's getting at. Uh, listen. I'm here defending not myself. Let the same thing happen to me. If I preach a different gospel. Paul is coming saying. This is about the message and the message that I am bringing to you is not my message. It's not something I've invented, invented or come up with. I have been commissioned by God. And I've been entrusted with this message called the gospel. It is something that has been revealed to me that I have received directly from God. I have not made this stuff up. And if I didn't make it up and you didn't make it up, if it's directly from God, that means one thing. No one can pervert it. No one can distort it, not me, not any of the other apostles. And look at verse 8, not even an angel from heaven. If they come perverting it, 
You kick them out the front door. No one is allowed to change or distort this gospel. Then he goes on, look at verses 3 through 5. It's Paul's nutshell summary of what the gospel is. And notice in those compact summary of the gospel, you see really the two sides of the gospel. You see the idea that the gospel includes bad news, but it also includes good news. And it's both of those things at the very same time. And if you miss that, that the gospel is bad news and good news, uh, then the gospel will never make you sing. You see, you've got to understand the bad news before the good news is really good to you. So what is the bad news? Look at verse 4. Jesus Christ, and I actually like the NIV here, the, uh, the New International Version better. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver, is what the ESV, the English Standard Version says. The NIV, if you have an NIV, says to rescue us. I love that word rescue. Gets right at the heart of what Jesus came to do. What does that imply? What does the word rescue imply? It implies that you need to be rescued. It implies uh, that you are lost, that we are brought into this world because of Genesis chapter 3, lost and helpless. And so the gospel, first and foremost, tells us that because of our sin, we need help, that we are helpless and lost. Because you think about it, you don't rescue people who can help themselves. You don't rescue people who are strong. You rescue people who are in trouble and who are helpless. So right from the very beginning, what we learn is that we don't need moral improvement. Five steps to a better life. We don't need character development that will help us better ourselves. We need all-out rescue. That's what Paul is saying here, and that's what the Bible teaches. A few years ago, we were vacationing in uh, the Gulf of Mexico area in Florida, and it was one of those hot days. It was peak season, and tons of people, very crowded. Uh, but our family was sitting on the beach. We had our chairs and towels, and it was scorching. And so we decided, okay, we're going to do a family swim in the Gulf of Mexico. And so we all run out into the water, and we're cooling off, and Susie's on an, uh, uh, has a raft, and she's kind of floating around, and the, some of our girls are diving, looking for shells, and I'm throwing Eva up into the air, and just playing and having fun as a family. And, and I hear what I think. It's very faint, but I hear, help, help. And again, there's lots happening, and so I'm not tuned in. And I'm thinking, how is anyone drowning out here like right now with all these people around? I'm not thinking about this. And so I just kind of ignored it, and literally 15 seconds later, I hear it a little clearer and a little louder. Help, help. And I look over to my right, and it's this father. And I kid you not, we're probably 20 feet off the, off the shore, and there is a riptide. And this father has two daughters. He's got one of the daughters in his hand, and he's struggling. And, but he's got her, and he is trying to swim out of the riptide with her, but there's no one that has the second daughter. That's where I come in. She's not a good swimmer to begin with, so I start swimming over to her, and I'm able to get her, and we're able... And I've never been in a riptide until this moment. And I, I kind of always thought, oh, that's really easy to get out of. I was exhausted. We finally swim out of the riptide. You know, you go parallel to the shore. I was able to get her up to the shore in safety. 
but we, I had to rescue her. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here. And what this girl did not need in the moment was for me to throw her a manual on how to swim. What she did not need for me to go and get the sign at the front of the beach on the boardwalk, you know, that tells you how to get out of a riptide. Everybody seen those signs? She didn't need me to go and get and say, here's an example for how you swim out of a riptide. She needed rescue. She was helpless and she was in trouble. And spiritually speaking, that is exactly what we need too. And here's the good news. That's what Jesus came into the world to do in order to rescue us. He came for rescue. Other founders of other religions, Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius, they came to teach. They didn't come to rescue. You were to walk up to Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha, and you were to say, I'm lost and I'm helpless and I need a savior, and you're a savior, right? They would look at you like you were crazy. What? No, because they saw themselves primarily as teachers. But if you were to walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm rock bottom. I have blown it. I am lost and helpless and I need to be rescued. Jesus would say, yes, come on in. Because that is what I have come to do. Was Jesus a great teacher? Absolutely, Jesus was a great teacher. Of course. But look at Paul's nutshell summary of the gospel. And what you do not see there is any mention of Jesus' teaching ministry. Why? Because Jesus primarily came into the world to rescue it and to save sinners. You see, that's what we most need, isn't it? Because the Bible says that we're not just drowning like this girl was in the ocean, that we're actually, it's worse than that because of our sin, that we're actually at the bottom of the sea, hopeless. And Jesus did not come to give us an example on how to swim and give us more information so that we could save ourselves. No, he came to bring us home and to do what we could not do for ourselves. That's what Jesus did. How does Jesus rescue us? Look at verse 4. He gave himself for our sins. Remember, Jesus came, and this is what he said, I am the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world fully and finally. And this is where people often get confused about Christianity. Notice the gospel is not Jesus teaches us the right way to live and then says, okay, now go obey my teachings. No, the gospel is that Jesus gave himself for you and he lives the life that you couldn't live. And he dies the death that you deserve. The gospel was Jesus, you needed a substitute. And Jesus was that substitute. Look at verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Who, just real quick here, who gets the glory for this rescue mission? Not you. And not me. From beginning to end, this rescue mission is all grace, and Jesus has done it all from beginning to end. Grace from beginning to end. And when we try to add something, it robs God of his glory. And that's one of the reasons why Paul is so upset in this passage. Let's look at the second point. 
how we distort the gospel. Remember the context for this letter. The missionaries, Jewish missionaries are coming, and they're basically saying to the church, in order for God to fully accept you, Paul, we like him okay, but in order for you to really be accepted, you've got to have Jesus plus circumcision and obedience. Then look at verses 6 and 7. Look at Paul's response there. Uh, there's a, you can be astonished in a good way and in a surprising way, and that can be very pleasant. Or you can also, there's a bad way you can be astonished. Well, Paul's astonished in the bad way here. He's furious. He's upset. Why is he so upset? Look at verse 7. Well, because they're distorting the gospel. They're adding something to the gospel. And the word literally means there, the word pervert in some of your translation or distorts, literally means reverses. You see what's happening here is Paul is angry. Because they have changed the order of the gospel. And the order of the gospel, listen, you've got to, this is important. The order of the gospel is everything. Look at verse 6. They were called by God's grace. And that means that the gospel order is that God loves me and is gracious with me and accepts me, therefore I obey. They made the gospel religion. Religion says, I obey and do all the right things, therefore God accepts me. See the difference? Paul is upset because Jesus plus anything is a distortion of the gospel, and he gets even stronger than that. He says, if you add anything to the gospel, it reverses the order and makes it a different gospel. And he goes on and says, no, no, it's not just a different gospel. It is no gospel at all. That is so strong, that language in verses 8 and 9. In other words, he's saying to change the gospel, even in the slightest little bit, is to lose it completely. And maybe you hear this this morning and you're thinking, Jason, Jason, this sounds so outdated. I mean, we're, think, we're talking 50 A.D. We're in 2018. Let's get a little more relevant, why don't you? I mean, what's all this talk about circumcision? Why should I care at all about the first century Christian debate on circumcision? Here's why you should care. Because the knee-jerk reaction, the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. The default mode of the human heart is self-righteousness. The default mode is that you, ever so slightly, want a part of your salvation. You want something that you can say, that you can go to God and say, look, look at how I've contributed to what you've done. It's ever so subtle. But we distort the gospel, never intentionally. You're not going around saying, let me tell you how I've, Change the gospel today. No, we don't do that, but it suddenly works its way into our hearts and we add to it. How does it look? What does it look like? A couple of practical applications of the way this might look. And I would encourage you to think about how you add to the gospel in your own life. Here are a couple of ways uh, that I think it's true and it's been true of me over the years. Gospel, uh, we add to it by saying we believe in Jesus plus right behavior. Yeah, yeah, we got the Jesus thing, but you also need to act right. For example, we add to the gospel when we say that is, you've got a Jesus, yes, 
but you need to demonstrate some right behaviors in order to make you a real Christian. In order for you to really be acceptable. And so we have this whole list of things that you must not do. You must not drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls who do. You can't watch certain movies or you can't listen to certain types of music. So we had all these lists of things that you can't do to be a real Christian. Or then we have this whole list of things that you must do in order to be a real Christian. Well, you must worship in a particular worship style. Or you must dress a certain way. Particularly when you come to church or when it's election season, then you must vote a certain way or you must date a certain way or you must raise your kids a certain way or you must educate your kids in this particular way. And the list goes on and on and on of the things. Suddenly, we would never say that, but in our hearts, we think that. It's very hard to see, but the assumption in all of those things is this. Get your act together. Get right. Then you can come to God. Then God will really accept you. See, that's what's under all of that. And think about personally in your own life, if that is your gospel this morning and that resonates with you, how does that make you feel this morning? Well, I can tell you how it would make me feel. And has over the years. Never good enough. Never good enough, never being able to measure up because deep down I think that I need to be doing something else in order for God to really like me and to be in his good graces. I never, you never think that you are actually pleasing God but that you almost always must do more and so you're walking around as one big ball of guilt. You're guilty All of the time. And not only that, but you're also dominated by fear, not freedom. Freedom's the gospel. Fear is not the gospel. And why are you fearful? Because you think that if someone were to find out about my struggling, oh no. Because if your gospel is Jesus plus right behavior, then there's no room for struggling. And so you're always managing people, and this is exhausting, managing people's perceptions of you. Friends, that is not good news. That is slavery. That will kill you. And that's why Paul says it's no gospel at all. It's not even a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. Challenging. How else do we add to the gospel? Well, we add to the gospel when we believe Jesus plus the sincerity of my faith. When we believe in Jesus plus the sincerity of my faith. You'll often hear in Christian circles this language of asking Jesus into your heart. Or Jesus becoming the Lord of your life. And that's okay, but listen, it can be dangerous if the gospel is not clarified here because you can end up giving, uh, giving people the impression that you're saved on the basis of how strong that your faith is. Oftentimes in our gospel, there's no Jesus, but there's a whole lot of us. You see, I grew up and I walked an aisle and asked Jesus into my heart and rededicated my life more times than you could possibly imagine because I wasn't sure it took. Because if my faith got weak or strong and I didn't think I was good enough and I thought, man, something must be wrong with me, so we need to try this again. And the assumption 
there was, and I didn't realize it then, I realize it now, was this, that God will accept me on the basis of how strong and sincere I am in my faith. That that's the basis of God's acceptance of me. Think about that just for a second. If that is your gospel, Jesus plus the sincerity of your faith, God's acceptance is based on the strength of your faith. Now what does that do to you? You want to talk about some pressure. That's a lot of pressure. Because you walk in around suddenly with the pressure to maintain that strong and sincere faith. And so you know what ends up happening in those moments is we try to generate that spiritual highs and lows when we go to conferences or when we go to church because, and worship nights because we got to feel it. Because if we're not feeling it, then God's not really at work in our hearts. And so not only if you might do that, but you also feel this pressure in your personality to be something that possibly you're not. Because you're thinking, i got to be excited. i got to be joyful. i got to be on fire. i got to be adventurous. And so I've got to maintain this high level of joy if I'm going to stay in God's good graces. Who is the focus in all of these things that I've shared? You and me. Jesus is nowhere in the picture, and the gospel is about him. And if we live Jesus plus the sincerity of our faith, you know what that is? That's misery. That's misery. Why would you want anything at all to do with that gospel? Because here's what that leads to. You're never assured of your salvation. How could you be? Because it's based on you. And so you have a roller coaster walk with Jesus. You're never fully sure that he has you and that you belong to him. You're constantly in fear. You're constantly doubting uh, your salvation. And that's why Paul says, look at verses 8 and 9. Very interesting. Paul says, if you believe a a different gospel, it brings not life, it brings curses with it. So very practically, Paul is saying that a lot of our fear, not always, but a lot of our fear and anxiety and guilt is attached to believing a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, according to the Apostle Paul. Paul says the good news of the gospel is that you're not saved by Jesus plus right behavior. That you're not saved by Jesus plus being really sincere and having a strong and having uh, being saved by the quality of your faith, but you are saved by the object of your faith plus nothing. And what is the object of your faith? The object of your faith is Jesus and Jesus alone. In the 1940s, there was a man by the name of um, Vito Pilecki, and he did something that was unthinkable. He'd heard that the Polish people. Uh, were in the uh, Oshawott's camp, a concentration camp. And he had heard rumors about this. Uh, didn't hear it directly because no one got al- out alive uh, to tell about it. And so he decided he was a Christian, that he was going to do something about it. And so he got Jewish identification papers that uh, showed that he was a Jew. And he went and he got, uh, they were bringing, uh, the Nazis were bringing prisoners into these concentration camps, and he went and got in the back of the line and got, off, got on a train and went right into the heart of these concentration camps. 
think about that. Everybody's trying to break out. Polecki says, I'm going to break in. And while he was on the inside, he organized resistance movements. He took great notes and smuggled out information. He was documenting the different war crimes that were happening. He was there for three years, ended up dying, and they threw him uh, in a mass grave, and he was buried there. Who does that? Think about, think about that. Who goes into hell in order to set prisoners free? Well, Jesus does that. Jesus breaks in to our prison of sin. He broke into hell in order to rescue you from your sin fully and completely and to free you. Jesus has done it all. This is what Paul's saying. Jesus has done it all from beginning to end in order to have the joy of being with you. See, Jesus plus nothing. That's what Paul is going to be coming back to over and over and over through our study of the book of Galatians. And I don't know about you, but it's really, really good news. My hope and prayer is that we would rest in Jesus plus nothing. And that Jesus plus nothing, that we would come to believe it so that it would change our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to rescue us, for not leaving us on our own, but that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we add to this wonderful message, for the ways we distort and pervert the gospel. Forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would show us very specific ways in our lives this morning, even ways that were not mentioned of the ways that we can apply this, the different ways subtly we add to your finished work. And lastly, we ask that you would free us from the slavery of another gospel. Come, Jesus, and help us. In his name we pray. Amen.